Hello, Agnes. Hey, Robin. Hello, guest, David Duvano. Hello. Um, I did a sequence of AI conversations sort of ad hoc over the last few weeks, and but I we didn't talk about that on our podcast directly uh, with Agnes, and so this is more of an add-on event where we're going to talk about AI risk with Agnes here to help. And my major way I want to set up the framing, um, you know, spending my points that I get to use to set up the framing here is to ask you first, what did you think was going to happen under the counterfactual that somehow AI is prevented, or at least the risky forms of AI were prevented from existing? What did you think was going to be our, what our descendants were going to be like? And our relationship to them and what, you know, concerns did you have about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I've watched a few of your other discussions and read your uh, summaries. And I think I basically agree with you that the sort of default, if we don't somehow coordinate to exert a lot of control over the future is that things continue to change. Uh, and, you know, in pretty radical ways, similar to the degree that things have changed over the last thousand or 10,000 years. Um, and that, you know, we would probably think of our like great great children's lives as looking a little bit alien and maybe like uh impoverished in some ways just like someone who grew up on a farm might think like you know from a distance city life looks very impoverished and why are you spending all your time you know looking at a, a small box and talking to other people through video screens that seems very unfulfilling um but it might be worse first of all you know rates of change have been accelerating so we might expect these sorts of changes to happen sooner in the future compared to how fast they happened in the past. Secondly, we expect our descendants to have more ways to modify themselves, not just culturally, but they could do genetic engineering and mind control and all sorts of other things. And third, we might have extended lifespans, perhaps even immortality, in which case more older generations would overlap with new generations living in the same place and time and having conflicts directly about their differing stances. So what do you think about that world? Hmm, that's a great question. I guess, I mean, it sounds, I guess, fine as far as things go. I, I could imagine most of the activity being taken up by something that we don't really like, like maybe competition or sorry, maybe like destructive wars or um, you know, there could be some horrible forms of uh, extortion that become like very common. I mean, I guess I don't have much to say about judgment on that future because it seems so different. And the, the ways that you just mentioned, it might be different. I agree. It could probably will be different in those ways, but I don't have strong judgments on it one way or another. But, but to foreshadow our AI discussion, how concerned are you that we develop better forms of human mind control and cultural control so that we can make sure our human descendants don't differ in values. Maybe we should not, not allow children for a while until we figure out how to have children so that they would stay in our control and not differ the way past children have. Yeah, that's a great point. And I do notice that I have this confusing uh, sort of uncanny valley of mind control, which is that perfect mind control doesn't really bother me, right? Like think of dogs. They really love serving humans. Um, you know, we still like spay and neuter them and do all sorts of bad things to them that they don't like. But, um, you know, it's certainly more palatable to, for, to me to think of some sort of like dog-like creature that 
from birth really cares about serving humans than say a wolf that has like a shock collar that forces it to, you know, take care of humans, even though it doesn't really want to. And, and does it sound plausible to you that you could make a child who was so thoroughly mind controlled that that seemed okay to you? Does that seem like a worthy descendant of yours? Would you be proud to have them be your descendants if they were so thoroughly mind controlled? So I think that that is already the case in some senses, like the facts, like, you know, we, we're built in with these desires to sort of, you know, care about our family and, um, maybe just through a bunch of, I guess, not very coercive seeming processes, like, you know, growing up in the same culture, you, there our children often do seem are like, start off like very aligned. And of course we make a big deal about it to the extent that they aren't. And then that coercion starts to look very ugly, you know, and like refusing to let your kid date who they want or change religion or whatever seems like, you know, it ends up being very costly um, on both sides. So again, I guess I feel like, yes, it's totally, seems totally okay and normal to me that we do mind control our children, uh, as long as it's in this sort of like total, totally successful sense where they actually, you know, are comfortable with the values that they have, which, you know, most beings are sort of. Can I, can I ask a question? Please. So is, it seems like the, the, th thing that's striking you as bad or dangerous here is the use of coercion. Is yeah. that right? I, I suppose. So. I mean, I think in the large, we can think a bit more about what kind of world we want to see and what kind of actions will lead to them. And that's a different discussion. I guess I just sort of in the small sort of like naive immediate morality, it really seems tough when you, again, like attach a shot collar to somebody and make them do things that they don't want. However, we don't, at least I don't see a huge problem in like sort of immediately with a being that is raised to love doing a particular thing, doing that thing. So have you ever seen the Stepford Wives? Uh, I know, but I, I, I think I know the main plot, which is that there's these sort of robotic housewives that are made to be perfect uh, wives, but it's somehow like a dystopia. I don't know. There's also a famous 50s science fiction novel about aliens like putting things on people's necks that control human minds to make them obey the aliens. Have you seen that one? I'm trying to remember the name a little. Uh, no, no. Well, I wanted to ask you whether those seem to be sufficiently mind controlled that you like those worlds. Uh, okay. I guess I'll say, so perfect mind control is not enough for me to like a world. Um, I guess I'm just trying to say, I don't find it unpalatable. Uh, like, I, I don't think it's actually that bad if we imagine designing some being and to have certain values. And, you know, you might call that brainwashing. And I guess I would say, I, I don't think it's problematic in the same way. I don't think it's problematic for my children to have similar values to me, whether it be through genes or, uh, you know, cultural transmission. And the bad part is if, if we sort of botch it and then we spend the whole, our whole lives just like, you know, fighting against our kids values because we sort of program them wrong. But, but. If we think about the processes that cause our values to change, right? Like trying out different kinds of arts or, try, you know, exploring different things. We might think that the reasons that our values are changing is because our values are mixed up in certain ways with our experiences. So in order to, you know, counterfactually have descendants go through similar experiences, but not have their values changed, you're going to have to be fundamentally changing those processes, right? neutering them in some sense. They're going to have to go through their lives with the sort of experiences that would have made us 
change our values and our attitudes, but their values and attitudes won't change. So that that's a you know substantive effect on their lives. When you imagine their lives with that aspect, does that seem admirable or or you know, praiseworthy? Yeah, that's great. So I think you're getting to the heart of the matter, uh, or you're leading me there, which is that uh, we can't have both uh, sort of the the capacity for growth and all the some of the things that we think make us human. Um, and also keep our values. And so if we did imagine some future uh, utopia-seeming world that managed to be much richer, but still have our current values, there would also be a lot of control or like, you know, electric fences or some uh, very invasive control, um, like maybe even my control to prevent people from updating and growing and like learning and adapting in the ways that we, that led us to how we are today. I think that's what you're trying to. Right. And asking you, does that look okay? Uh, so I guess I would say <laughs> I there's a lot of versions of that that don't look okay. And again, I have this intuition that these this control is somehow a a bad thing. Although to be honest, like I haven't thought deeply about what this would look like in, in detail. But I guess I imagine, and I'm not sure about this, and that's one thing I want to talk about, that there's a third way where our descendants really do care about keeping their um, you know, traditions or values or whatever, um, in a, in a way that's stronger than we did and a way that limits their growth, but in a way that also they are happy with because it is their actual values. And you imagine that third way, but how big a priority would you make it for us to like lock down change and stop change until we figured this thing out? Would, would you make put trillions of dollars into a research project to try to figure this out and, and put all sorts of controls into preventing cultural change for the next century or two if necessary until we figure out this better form of mind control that you hope might exist? <laughs> so uh, I guess I'm going to bite the bullet and say I am. I do think that such a thing is plausible and I'm considering it. And, and that's kind of why I want to talk to you because it does sound insane and, and, and every other project that has been tried in history that looks like this has led to horrible disasters and you know mass killing and misery and uh, like suffering risks as, as the AGI people call it. So I, I think even on its face, uh, it, it's very unlikely to succeed and very likely to lead to some worst of both worlds thing where we just lock in some horrible suffering for a long time and struggle growth, and then still human values disappear. Um, however, I care enough about some sort of humanity surviving that I, where I want to spend my next few years at least is trying to flesh out if there is possibly any third way that we could reasonably hope to execute without ending up in one of these horrible dystopias. And before we go to AI, the one last question is, could you just give us an example or two of what would represent these kind of values that you would be willing to take this chance of creating this, you know, very risky control and destruction of ordinary human culture in order to preserve that? Do you have some examples of these things that you value so highly? Yeah. So this is, uh, sounds very naive and parochial, but, uh, you know, I have like, a bunch of kids and I would really like to see something that looks like uh, grandkids and my kids getting to have a similar experience that, that I had of, you know, growing up, you know, facing the world, developing and then having kids and continuing that. So, so the process of raising children and being a child that's raised, that's the experience that you want to make be maintained that you fear might be lost. Yeah. And being a parent. Yes. Can I, can I ask about this? Cause it's, um, uh, I guess I just find it a bit alien, the thought of locking in our values. Like, of course, 
we see our values as good because otherwise we wouldn't like value the world through them. They're like a lens through which we see what's, you know, good and bad. But um, I guess I see a lot of room for improvement. Um, like I see a lot of room for improvement with parenting. Like I feel like as a parent, I mostly don't know what I'm doing and uh, I'm not doing a great job. I'm not doing a worse job than the people around me. No one's doing a very good job because no one really knows what they're doing. And I'd really like the future parenting to be radically different from the way it is now. Like way, way, way better. That's the world I would like. And I feel that way about just about every value. I just think, well, there's just a huge amount of room for improvement. I'm not really able to imagine it. And it would be a total catastrophe to lock in the situation we have now, which like basically sucks compared to how it could be. So what what do you it like? Is it that you just see a lower ceiling than I do? You're like pretty much we've got it. Um, or yeah. No, so I think we agree, and I think you're conflating locking in values and locking in the situation. And I agree, there are tons and tons of situ uh, problems with the current situation, such as like child abuse and even like many other things we do wrong. And so, but I think you're agreeing when you say we want the future to be better. Uh, I think we both do, but according to our current values, I mean, almost by definition. So uh, if in the future we came to, I don't know, think child abuse was good or, or like, you know, fine, you would probably say, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not better. That's not what I wanted. So um, I, I guess I'm trying to say there's a really hard task of specifying our values at a level of abstraction that allows growth and change, or at least, let's say, improvement um, without losing the fundamental goodness. And this might be impossible. This might, our goals might be so incoherent that this is just like uh, a specified task, but uh, sort of sort of saying almost by definition, this is what I want. So then it sounds like it's worth asking you to go a little more detail. What do you value about parenting that you want to keep, even if you're willing to allow the experience and practice of parenting to change? Could you describe a value of parenting? Yeah, great, great point. So I guess I would say like uh, my own personal growth and and sort of realizing that I can level up and have these abilities that I didn't ever get to express before. Um, my children leveling up, uh, me getting to sort of uh, be a bigger part of the future, right? Maybe gaining like long-term influence. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, I would say like base level values of just, it just makes me happy when my kids is like, I love you dad or whatever. And you know, it's like, why do you love eating? It's like, I just really love the sensation. So at some point we're sort of bottoming up, bottoming up and just like, these are, things that I value, period. And, and I don't know if I can abstract m most of them. So, so let, me, let me offer one more distinction here. Many of the changes that happened in the past, we can understand as functional innovations that we expect to continue because something was invented that will just retain value for a long time, like eyes. It was a time before eyes. Now we have eyes. We don't think eyes are going away. It might be in different forms. Or even law, say, or markets. Like there are things that didn't ne once never existed. Now they exist, but we think they will just keep going. And leveling up sounds a lot like one of those things. Like it's just like really hard to imagine things being born and growing in a complex world that wouldn't level up. So I would argue that you shouldn't worry about those sort of things going away. You should worry maybe about other more context dependent things. So could you give us an example of a other more context dependent thing? That's the thing you're, you're more reasonably worried about going away. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, okay. First of all, I want to say your, your point is well taken that it's funny to be like enjoying or valuing growth in the small, but then somehow being troubled by growth in the large, it, it just seems like a real inconsistency there. I mean, I guess, again, just because I'm like a 
simple animal, like even just the physicality of like, let's say hugs, right? And then you might say, okay, well, we can simulate hugs. That'll be like way better. And I, I agree. Um, but that's just like maybe, a, okay. So you're, I guess you're trying to say anything that I can point to as like a specific thing that I like, you'll say, but we can probably do it better if we sort of, uh, again, have more. But we might not be inclined to. So, so an example you might give me is what children giggling. Uh, my wife told me that recently the best sound in the world is a child giggling. And you might think children will be happy and they'll grow, but for some reason they won't giggle. Sure. And that would be a specific thing you think might go away. Yeah. Uh, and you want a future where we make sure children giggle. And if culture would make that otherwise change, we got to stop that because children giggling is a thing you want to make sure happens. Yeah, I think it's a good example. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so I think that I think that we weren't agreeing about um, the value versus the situation. That is the the example you gave is like okay, child abuse is bad, right? And so we want a future where that doesn't happen. That's not what I was imagining. I was so if you compare us to I well, Robin and I are reading this book about peasants in France in like the eighteenth century, eighteenth nineteenth century, and like um, the way they treat their kids, we would call that child abuse. Um, you know, they're, they're a bit expendable. They put them to work at a really young age. Um, a whole bunch of stuff about the way that maybe they don't even like, like they're giggling that much, let's say. Um, and so I'm imagining a future that stands to us in our parenting, the way we stand to those peasants. Namely, they would say what they were doing with their kids was child abuse. That is, their kids were like trying to grow and develop, but they were barely helping them. And they were kind of just letting the kids doing what they want without even realizing what human potential was. Um, that was like a pathetic excuse for parenting what the people did back then in 2020. That's the future I want. And so it's not just a future in which my values are realized and the things that I already know are a mistake, like child abuse, don't happen. It's really a future where they have different values, just as we have different values from these uh, French peasants. I guess I would challenge you and say, if you're comfortable with our values changing arbitrarily, then I feel like it just basically doesn't matter what we do because it's just saying like, okay, whatever people value in the future, that's what they value. And uh, like, I might as well just give up or, you know, like I, if you're willing to sort of hand over the reins to someone else, no matter where they're going to steer, I guess that, that to me seems the same as almost having no values. I mean, I, I, I guess the difference is whether you think um, improvement, like whether you sort of trust the future to make things better. Um, oh, yeah, so like exactly. the peasants handed, the peasants handed things over to us and I think we did a good job and, uh, we should approach our descendants the same way that the peasants should have approached us, regardless of whether they would have. Well, I think this is the case of the victors writing history books. Like, um, of course, we like our values, right? Like, that's just like what we uh, care about. So, of course, we did a good job, you know, separating the future from everyone before us by our own standards. Um, but I don't like. I think Robin would say, let's again by our current standards. That's maybe not likely to change, or that not likely to be the case for a lot of our things that we consider values today. So I guess I would say, again, if you just think that the future is going to be do fine with the world, no matter what, then I guess it doesn't really matter what we say today because we've already won. Um, but so again, 
we could factor change into two buckets. We could say one bucket of change is admirable and understandable, and we would endorse after the fact looking at it. That's innovation, like I talked about with markets and law and eyes, right? If our ancestors didn't have eyes and they see us with eyes, they'll go, cool, that's great, glad you have eyes. And then another bucket of change is this other kind that happens somewhat randomly in your view, and therefore, wherever it goes, you don't endorse and you didn't want that kind of change. And I think Agnes is doubting how much there is of the second kind of change. Maybe more concrete examples would help, but I guess we all agree the first kind is fine. Uh, but the question is, how much is there of the second kind change that just wouldn't be the sort we would endorse if we knew about it, even on reflection, even fully understanding it? Uh, how much possibility is there for our descendants to just be different in that way? such that, for example, our ancestors who understood us fully would still reject some of our changes and just say, no, that was just wrong. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that that's a, that the sort of empirical question that I think we need to work out because I think I agree with you that our, our choices are have a mostly competitive, uncontrolled future that has some potential for this kind of uh, accidental change or maybe it's predictable, but we're not necessarily endorsing it. Or take a gamble on the singleton to enforce like our current values, which again, maybe we already think that has like a 90% chance of being some horrible, you know, uh, sort of Soviet dystopia forever. If you accept these two buckets, I might ask, like your importance of these buckets might be a parameter, say between, you know, zero and one. I might say if 90% of the stuff I value is in the first bucket and 10% is in the second bucket, then a, a future where that 10% just goes off into random directions, I might think that's okay. Because, hey, 90% in the first bucket, and I care a lot about that first bucket. That's what it means to put 90% on it. And so I think if I allow the past processes to continue, I'm going to get a full exploitation of that first bucket in all the ways possible. And if we try to constrain things to limit that second bucket, because you don't want that to happen, I'm worried about that stopping the first bucket. Somehow we're not going to get all the good agreed on change because you're so obsessed with them differing with you about children giggling. And I go, wait, so how, how important could it be for children to give the Google for God's sake, as opposed to our civilization, figuring out how to parent well, going to the stars, taking over the universe, having immortality, figuring out the truth of goodness, you know, can't, can't you give up on the child giggling bit? I mean, how important yeah. could that be? Yeah. Oh, and I think maybe a good example of the second kind of change would be like language evolution. Right. And you could say like, oh, there's like the French institution that tries to keep language the same. And, but it, it's actually really useful and enriching for us to like, let it evolve and it does alienate us from our past and even our like, you know, older generations. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, <laughs> when you put it that way, if those are our two choices, I, I think I would probably bet on growth and sort of like let her rip. Um, I still think it's worthwhile spending a lot of time thinking about if there is anything in between. And I, I think you might reasonably warn that, well, that's going to be used as a license by the singleton wanters to build their horrible singleton, which I also agree that that's like a real danger. Okay, but if if the if the choice is between you know letting some one percent of world budget be dedicated to your research to try to find these better forms of mind control that if we find them we'll use, and but still letting things rip, but until you find something or locking down change and saying nope, 
no change until we figure this research thing out. Your choice then would be? Uh, I think it would be the 1% thing. However, I think we disagree on the situation because this alignment thing, I think has this research has to be done anyways. Right? And we see this right now with like OpenAI kind of conflating the sort of alignment in the small of like, do what the user asks you to do in this session and alignment in the large, which is like care about humanity and there are really important values. So I agree that like maybe the one is easy and one is nearly impossible, but I guess I would say that we are going to have to spend a lot of time like aligning AIs in, in some way. And so, uh, we do de facto have to make these choices about mind control already. So I, I want to spend a lot of time thinking about it or even more time thinking about it than the market would incentivize. Well, there's needing to spend a lot of time and whether the market would incentivize it enough. Those are, that's a separate question. You might say like, if parents care enough about their children sharing their values, uh, they might be willing to pay a lot for some technology to let them do that. And the market might therefore invest a lot in that sort of technology in order to sell it to those parents who are so eager to make sure their children still giggle. Yes. But I think there's likely to be a tragedy of the commons where like, for instance, I want my kids to have meaningful jobs, uh, I, like maybe something like that. And I think, uh, we both agree that, you know, if we let AIs compete, then at some point, you know, normalish humans just won't be able to. And so, uh, even if every individual parent wants their kids to have meaningful jobs, competition will mean that humans are outcompeted. So I'll plant a flag that we may come back to the subject of whether there's a market failure, whether there's insufficient effort going there. But I guess I feel like we should probably now, since we put off AI so long, ask about AI relative to the scenario we just outlined in your priorities with respect to human descendants and how they would differ in their values. Is the situation with AI substantially different or is it really just the same problem adding in some new kinds of descendants. So I agree with you. I think it, or sorry, I'm not, you didn't say you asked. Okay. I think it's similar in some ways. And we could have imagined coming up with like really intense constitutional governments that are so dedicated to avoiding change that I think like they could have been successful. And I think, uh, ancient Sparta is an example of a, um, civilization that did actually have a quality, like a government that successfully stops change. And then it was sort of very powerful for a while. And then gradually got irrelevant and not competed and then, you know, went away. So I guess I'll say, I think that technology existed before, but the thing that's new is the potential aid to me have much more control over the sort of constitution, um, and make it more permanent and also pair it with this massive growth and wealth generation that we expect AGI to give us in the near future. So let's distinguish is the AI version of this problem, a worse problem. And that's a separate question from, do we have better tools to solve this problem with AI compared to with humans? And it seems like you were addressing that second question. That's a great point. I guess I would say it's only worse in the sense that it's going to happen faster, but otherwise I think it's analogous. Okay. So the actual AI problem is the same sort of problem, except it might happen faster, but then if that's a bigger problem because it's faster then that's what you might've wanted to do for humans, even without AI, you might've said, what yep. we need to do is slow this down. Exactly. I might've been the guy like, uh, like lots of religions have, you know, tried to say, we're going to have these traditions that were writing down in a book. And then, you know, thousands of years later, people are still doing those traditions. And again, you might say, well, that's has all sorts of downsides, but I think I would still want to do something like that. Uh, but obviously in a way that doesn't, if possible, interfere with the actual uh, like a bunch of other values and growth. So again, I'm not totally convinced that it's even possible to have best of both worlds, but that's 
again, okay. what I wanted us to spend our brain power on. So summarizing so far, you have this problem that some of our changes are changes you don't like, even though you might agree most are changes you do like. Um, that hum human descendants and AI descendants both have this issue that they're, that part might go directions you don't like. One thing that accentuates that problem in both cases is change happening more rapidly. So you might be tempted to slow down change. You might be tempted to interest, institute stronger mind control. You want more budget to go into trying to find mind control solutions. And there's this last claim that it might be easier to have effective, useful mind control for AI relative to humans. So what's the basis for that claim? Oh, uh, I guess I would say uh, it's easier to do like brain surgery on an AI um, in the sense that we can, you know, copy states, uh, examine this, you know, the state in perfect detail, right? Doing neuroscience on a machine is just so much, it's, it's equivalent to doing neuroscience on a human. If we could copy them, have perfect atomic microscopes that could look at every single neuron firing it in a person's entire life and then do randomized controlled trials where we just like edit, you know, out one tiny bit at a time. So that's the reason I think it's easier. So I'm sure you're aware of this possibility of brain emulations of humans they would, by definition, be transparent and editable. Then do you think there's similar prospects for brain emulation mind control as AI mind control? Yes. And you'd be similarly tempted to want to impose mind control on them? I think so. I There might be some like values I have about uh, mind controlling humans being more distasteful to me than machines. But I like let's say in the first pass, about equally uh, distasteful. I guess I'm surprised, but I sort of thought that when you were saying that it was easier to modify um, the AI, that that's partly because coercion is less of an issue. That is, you're not as worried about coercing them as you are with humans. But maybe that's not right if you want to. Uh, that's also true. Although I think that will change. And at some point, we will probably have minds that, you know, some of us might feel are so rich enough that we don't want to just like, you know, give them pain. Uh, but I think you're, that's also true that I'm much happier to do surgery on a machine brain than a human brain because I don't, I don't want to coerce them or punish them or give them, you know, pain. So some people I've talked to at this point would claim that AIs are more modifiable because in some sense they're simpler. Uh, they have a more transparent architecture, a simpler design or something. And then some people would say, well, they just expect AIs to be more different than human descendants would be. And that's why they're more afraid of them and then also more willing to constrain them. But that's not your position here. I would say the second thing I agree with to some extent, and I, you know, just like I don't care as much about non-human primates as I do humans, I, I don't expect I'll care much, as much about human or AIs, although I do expect to interact with some very charming AIs in the future that will make me less like speciesist, but, uh, I'd, you know. Agnes, do you have a useful intervention here? Um, I guess I have a question for Robin, which is, um, say we're not talking about stopping change. Say we're just talking about slowing it down. What's so bad about that? I'm not sure you have a knob calibrated in those units. Um, I, I think at the moment we have rapid change. We are at the moment sort of area by area limiting change. 
you know, in terms of say genetic engineering or nuclear energy or other sorts of things. And we are still growing, but I think if you, if you just make sure, oh, as long as we're still growing, it's okay to slow things down more. You might reach a point where things slow down to zero and you go, oh, I need to back off and that doesn't work. Uh, it may not, you may not really have a sense of what exactly you're controlling, what the effect is. There may be long lags. So for example, at the moment, like say China had a one-child policy to limit fertility growth and population growth. And then they decided recently, oh, we stamped down that too hard time to let, you know, let off the brakes and okay, people go wild, have more kids and, and they don't. That is, there's a lot of inertia in all the social changes they caused through their one child policy. And it's not obvious that they will in a very long time manage to, you know, regain net growth from fertility in, in population. So I think it's not just not clear whether you, whether your constraints are actually making, allowing positive growth or not, it won't be clear for a while. And by the time it is clear, it may be somewhat too late for many of your issues. I see. That seems like a very hard thing to predict one way or the other. Yes. So that means, in essence, there's a probability distribution over whether we will continue to grow. And every time you regulate another thing and limit another kind of change, I have to say you're just adding to the probability that we won't grow. That's how I think you should think of your choice. You're, you're, that's the choice you're making. You're, you're making more controlled growth in the scenarios where you do grow, but a few smaller fraction of the time are you growing. Right. So now it just sort of seems to me like, well, there's some kind of a trade-off between how much control we have and um, how much growing we're going to do. And kind of everyone agrees that um, we should do some growing and everyone agrees that we should have some control. And then the question is just like where to make that trade-off. Is that, is that the, that, does that sum up your, your guys' disagreement? I'm not sure we about this point, actually. I think that controlling growth is very uh, blunted instrument and dangerous. I think recently there have been a few knobs that look kind of tempting, like stopping the training of the very largest large language models. Um, but I totally agree with Robin that, you know, every time you do like a windfall tax or like some big intervention like this, people will anticipate that it's going to happen the next time. And then they might just not invest. Or there's all sorts of, you know, unforeseen second order effects. So I think we agree that it's like a very blunt instrument and potentially extremely destructive every time we try to control our slow growth. But you do think that some amount of uh, slowing growth is worth it in order to get more control over um, the descendants being similar to us, right? I suspect that's the case. I'm not sure. And I mean, I, I think if we think controlling growth is worthwhile, it's because we expect it to be paired with, let's say, upgrading our institutions, like our sense-making institutions and decision-making institutes, institutions, like you know, using prediction markets more or something like that. Um, if we don't think that that sort of thing is going to happen in the meantime, then I agree we're just kind of hitting ourselves on the head. And uh, you know, it's like the people who said, like, why are we going to space when we haven't solved poverty? It's like, well, we're not going to solve poverty even if we don't go to space. Um, so. But again, I think that the default features are probably pretty bad from my point of view. I'm not certain about this. So I really want to spend a bunch of time trying to, again, think about whether there are ways that we could do some controlling of the growth 
as in a way that we expect would actually help. But I agree that naively just saying, you know, putting our foot on the brakes is a very dangerous and probably just destructive move. But Robin, you agree that um, some controls are appropriate, right? Like in one of your conversations, you said a form of regulation you might support is that these training runs uh, should have to be done in specially secure facilities where that presumably would cost more money or whatever. Like that's a, a form of intervention that you at least tentatively were saying you might support, right? Seem relatively low cost. In particular, I was saying secure operating systems. Okay. So, which is so kind of facility. My point is that, like, at the metal level, it seems to me that you, Robin, all agree right. uh, that with David that um, some uh, growth costs right. are worth it for getting control. So, so a lot of debates end up of this form. You, you define a spectrum, you define two extremes, and then you notice neither of us want to go all the way to either extreme. And then you say, okay, we're done, we agree. And you go, no, not quite. So what I want to do is more identify the factors that would push you in one direction or another on this axis to get a handle on moving yourself on the axis. That is, I want to find analysis frameworks that will give us some bearing on this. And so... One of my analysis frameworks that you may have read or heard is this idea of fertile and infertile factions. That's uh, a way to think about which of these changes you want to embrace and you know protect, defend your side of some axis, and for which of them you're going to go, I don't care so much, let it go. So this is, I think a lot of people are just going on a very basic intuition, which is, I imagine a thing, I imagine how different it feels for me. And I go, the more different it feels for me, the more I go, eh, I don't like that. I want to stay over here on my end of the spectrum. That I think is just the core emotional intuition going on here. And I want you to reflect on that and, and, and notice that maybe on reflection, some of those differences you shouldn't care so much about and others you should. That's how I want to push you. And one way to do that is to ask you to reflect on which of these factions would evolution, cultural or genetic, induce you to favor, and which of them would it not? That is, you might realize you have this, you know, yay us, boo them intuition, in part because evolution supports that and, and selects for it, for some kinds of us versus them, but not for all kinds of us versus them. And I would argue that the us versus AI is not one of those kinds that evolution would select for. And therefore, it's not something that on reflection you should so strongly endorse. Can you I so ask a question? Please. Sorry to interrupt. No. Just a question about that, about how we can tell whether a faction is fertile or not. So I believe one of the examples you gave of an infertile faction was like identification with one's gender. Right. But how do we know evolution wouldn't favor that? That is, maybe it sort of turns out that when people, you know, women bond with other women and men bond with other men and they feel a bit of antipathy towards each other, that we reproduce more in that situation. So the argument is about the simplest form of selection, 
you could always make more complicated models where in some version of them you would get selection in one direction and others you get selection in the other direction. But if I average over those, I might get typically the simpler model. So, so just to make sure our listeners are up to date here, the idea is, uh, for example, for gender, that we're in this evolutionary equilibrium where if like there are substantially more males than females and males mate with females, then uh, you know, you just get more genetic bang by putting your genes into females because it's not it's moved away from 50-50. So there's this strong evolutionary pressure for your genes to be a package that's equally valuable as a male or a female uh, because that mixture is set. So you you might happen to have a set of genes that's just they go better in females than in males, but then there'll be some other package of genes that goes better in males than females. You, some subgroup could happen to it for them. It could be true that it's a fertile faction for them to favor their gender, but then there would be some other genes that for, for whom it would be a fertile faction to favor the opposite gender. And both of these genes will show up in both genders an equal amount of the time with standard genetic, you know, male, female mating. So, but rather than get into the details, I mean, I mainly wanted to like, if you buy into this idea that there are fertile factions, and you see rough some examples, then you might be able to ask, is this us versus AI a fertile faction? So, so my favorite example of a fertile faction would be a generation, like favoring your generation over the next generation uh, that can't plausibly favor- Infertile faction. Right, that, that's an infertile faction, right, I'm sorry. That can't plausibly promote your genes or memes, so you should even if you have the intuition that next generation, they feel different from me and I want to like promote my generation over them. You got to realize that on net natural selection, isn't going to favor that kind of a favoritism. And then, you know, the next analogy closest to AI would be imagine space descendants versus earth descendants. So we're all here on earth and there's this axis of earth, earth people versus space people. And you could see, ah, I favor Earth people over space people. And you could think, if we let people leave Earth, there'll be these space people and they'll come to dominate Earth people because there's a lot more space than Earth. And that would be bad for my side of the faction because I'm an Earth people. So the way that we Earth people can win is to prevent anybody from leaving Earth. And then, ta-da, we Earth people will win over the space people. Yay us. And you can see how evolution isn't going to favor that. Evolution is going to favor lineage expanding into all the resources available to it which means expanding out into space. So that's a cl relatively close analog because I would say AI is basically about expanding out into mind space. We are now in a corner of mind space where the humans are occupying. There's this vast territory of mind space we can expand out into. And as we expand out, we will take with us many features of us that we value. Okay, great. So I think we're getting to the part that I wanted to talk about, which is the, the taking parts that we value. So. I mean, I think here's a word, Doctor. I agree with you that the uh, beings that favor becoming more fertile will dominate. Um, to the, with the caveat that I might decide that some amount of change uh, means that I'm no longer me, right? So if you say, "Hey, step into this blender, and we're going to use your iron to make a von Neumann probe," and then that's going to be like a very fertile faction, like, aren't you happy to be part of the future? I would say that's not me. That's the von Neumann probe. So I, I think what I really want to talk about is, okay, how can we engineer legacies, right? Can we 
make these von Neumann probes say, okay, on every planet, you're going to have a little like human colony and it's going to be a little like Potemkin village or something like that. Um, and I, I think that, that that sounds really silly and naive. I don't think I might, thinking along these lines is very sophisticated, but I think that this knob of how much legacy we are giving to the replicators is a really important one. And I don't accept sort of that zero control over it is like the, an, an equilibrium we should accept without really trying to push on that uh, frontier. So let me sketch what I would think as the default AI future and ask if you disagree. I would say the default AI future is in the near term, for-profit firms on earth make AIs for human customers to sit in human-like roles. And for those purposes, they will be evolved to look much like humans, to act much like humans, and to have, at least on the surface in their behavior, relatively human values. And then over time, they will become a larger fraction of the economy. Then at some point, they will dominate the economy. And then from that point forward, their ch value changes will more be dominated by the internal processes within that community rather than the external pressures from humans and customers of what they want. But that meant we will have endowed them initially with a lot of us. And when they go out into the universe, when they meet other alien AI from other civilizations, they will be more like us than those other AIs. Yep. And so, then so they will take a lot of us out there right. in okay. that default future, right? Right, right, right. And now I'm going to say, okay, but I bet you would also agree that there might be some cheap interventions we can do. Like with in your talk with Katja Grace, you were saying, we maybe want to add some like consciousness having mo mo uh, modules if they're cheap. And I would say we also want to add some like, uh, let's say like we really want them to respect the Sabbath or something. It's like a silly example, right? Like let's say, okay, they're going to have like one micro Sabbath per century. Yeah, uh, but I don't want a silly example. I want an example you actually believe in. Like when we talk about the children giggling, is that an example you believe yeah, in? Sure, sure, AI sure. children need to giggle. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Let's say AI children need to giggle. So are there cheap interventions that we can expect would increase our legacy, our degree of humanness of these uh, AGI descendants. And now, of course, they could giggle in a surface sort of way that wasn't the right sort of giggling. Yep. And the question is, how deep are you going to have to go into them to make them have the right sort of giggling for the right sort of reasons? Yep. Just like our ancestors might have said, well, sure, you go to church and you say mass, but like you're not really doing it the right way. Not oh, exactly. the right sort of reasons the way we did. Right. And this is what like the alignment problem is, right? Like how do we make them actually care about the things that we like in our deepest senses would? And I agree that that might be able to find. But you know that there may not be these deepest things. So oh, exactly. exactly. So, so for example, like there's this literature on authenticity and people want to be their authentic selves and they resent say social pressure making them their inauthentic selves. But when you probe for what is their authentic selves, it just turns out to be whatever is more socially admired. Yes. That's what they consider their authentic yeah. self. Yeah, so I, there really isn't this deep self that they're preserving. They are actually trying to present an image of a deep self, which is equal to whatever they want to present. So I agree that my values are, are, are incoherent and like uh, maybe not deep in, in many senses, but I still have some preferences over the far future, I guess is the thing, the claim I want to defend. Can I just go back and ask about... Um... I think I still don't understand why the gender-based preferences are um, necessarily infertile. And uh, let me go to the other example you gave, the generational preference, right? So the preference for my generation over the next generation. So just historically, every culture I have ever heard of or read about has had this preference. It's like pretty much universal. 
And not only that, but it, but it, it's like it's always like the one right before us. They were better. Like you, you get, it goes back to Hesiod. There's like the golden age, and it's just been going downhill. And um, so it looks like a very fertile preference in the sense that um, when you look at actual human societies, societies that um, where they say these kids these days um, don't measure up to my generation, that works out in the long run. Now, we may not exactly understand how it works out, right? And you're sort of saying like, well, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense, um, but sort of empirically it works out. And the same thing could be true of gender preference. It just could be that in societies where there's like gender conflicts that come from identifying with your gender, those people reproduce more. And so I, I still feel like I'm not sure I see that we... It seems like an empirical question, which for, for factions are fertile or not. And we may not be able to know by reasoning. And maybe the best guesses are just look historically, which factions have been fertile. I think you're talking about which factions are energizing. We, we could just say which factions engage people and which factions do they coordinate around. And that concept, I agree, people do coordinate around, gen around generations. So setting aside evolution just as a general social fact, you know, a, a standard feature of societies that we economists analyze is just the tendency to form coalitions. Democracy promotes this, but many other kinds of worlds do, where basically you want to join a majority group that's going to dump on a minority. And people are always looking around for what majority group they could, they could join that would join together to dump on a minority and gain an advantage that way. And for that purpose, most any group will do but you're especially going to be looking for groups that you hang around a lot where you can observe them better to see if they're going to stay with this coordination. Basically, are you guys, you know, because there's always a bunch of competing coalitions at the same time. That's a key feature of political theory, et cetera. It's, you know, this coalition battle is unstable in the sense that whenever you've got a coalition that's, you know, going to beat on a minority, there's always a way to tempt a majority of that coalition off to a different coalition that gets even more advantages. And that's just an endless loop. Like it's it's just a fundamentally hard to get everybody around one coalition and get them to resist all the other coalitions they could possibly join to to favor a different majority over a different minority. And so in that battle for coalitions, which kind of comes with the dominance, a big factor is just going to be can we like see each other, see that each other are like devoted to this coalition, monitor us for betrayal of the coalition those sorts of things, that's going to be a big causal part in which coalitions actually form. That's just a different effect. I'm going to call that energizing. Coalitions that can actually form and successfully beat on the alternative will be a coalition that exists and happens, but that's different than whether it's promoting its genes or memes. That's an evolutionary promotion concept, and that's what I meant by fertile. But wouldn't you think that the more energized coalitions are going to be more likely to promote themselves? They would be more likely to form and dump on the minority, but that doesn't mean they actually promote their genes. That's the point. That those are different actions. Okay. Speaking of actions, I kind of want to uh, bring this conversation to a more concrete decision that, that I have to make, right? So um, I'm like a machine learning researcher. And so right now my main choice is, well, I can stay in academia. I could go to, let's say, OpenAI and uh, make big bucks, uh, ushering in this new age of growth, uh, or, you know, who knows, 
you know, like in expectation, you know, or I could, you know, try to do some sort of more activisty kind of thing about like engineering some sort of governance. And from my point of view, the open AI route seems like, okay, great. I'll get rich. That'll give me more local control over the, you know, the world and like help my kids more. But in the long run, I won't be able to have much influence on like the AI, AI, AI that we build because it's going to be constrained by competition. So I disagree. So okay. I disagree right there. Great, great, great. Right. So say in the um, AI world, just like with human descendants, there'll be a competition between autarky and democracy, right? Or democracy and some other kinds of government, right? And that's one of the kind of factions you feel an alliance toward. I don't know which I'm not going to ask you, but <laughs> it stands in for dozens of other factions on which you might be taking a side. Sure. Right? You might like be Star Trek versus Star Wars. You're just really into Star Trek and your mission in life is to make sure the aliens love Star Trek. The, 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 your descendants love Star Trek more than Star Wars, right? And all the AIs do, right? So the point is you're part of a number of factions like that. And the future of AIs, they will take side on those things. They will take sides on Star Trek versus Star Wars. They will take sides on democracy versus autarky. And by getting rich today, working with for open AI, you will be able to influence which of those factions have more, inf you know, dominate in the future. You will be able to allocate your extra resources and time from your winning at this career game to promote many other factions if you are willing to side with the AI, right? So that is, because that's that's like, if if you were thinking about leaving Earth versus not with the, you know, Earth versus space faction, you'd realize if you leave Earth, there's this, you're going to be a much bigger economy out there and you'll be able to influence much part of it and you'll be able to use all your greater wealth and space to promote all the other things you cared about. That's the direct analogy there. Okay, great. So I think I disagree because my fear is that, yes, in the short term, I could influence like these uh, these decisions. But in the long term, if we allow competition to like let it rip, that, you know, Star Trek versus Star Wars just won't matter anymore, right? And the eyes won't care. They won't care about... Uh, Basically, all the things that we care about won't really matter at all anymore. And so the only choice that, chance that I have is to maintain something like the status quo. So I think that's a misconception about competition, or at least let me argue that and, and let's okay. see, go there. So as you may know, Marx and Engels, you know, founders, you know, writers of the Communist Manifesto, they argued explicitly that the natural thing with capitalism was going to have competition was going to lead to one capitalist firm who ruled the world, Right. And many people have just thought that competition just converges to a uniformity and leaves no room for variation or legacies. And many people theoretically think that even about AI, they claim that AI competition would lead to the one AI, a single kind of AI, the universe would be filled with the one AI. They're all the same. They all do exactly the same thing. They all think exactly the same because they think that's the natural endpoint of competition. Biologically on earth, you can see very clearly that biological competition has led to increasing variety, increasing diversity and complexity. And similarly, competition within the human economy has led to increasing diversity and variety and complexity. And I think we have many ways to understand that. And so it's just wrong to think that a vast world of AIs spreading into the universe with big, complicated minds and, and economies and ways they could interact would all converge to some simplicity that destroys all legacies. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I agree with you that that there is a degree to which legacies preserve even under competition. Um, but I guess I would think about like 
in very competitive markets, we do tend to see convergence. Like, you know, big corporations tend to look very similar. Products tend to become more similar. Even religions, I think, become more similar as they but, grow. But remember, we had this distinction between like innovate, functional innovation and other stuff, right? Yep. So the functional innovation, you should expect to converge and you should want to converge, right? It's the other stuff that you might want legacies in. And that's the stuff uh, where competition doesn't necessarily take it all away. Okay. So I, 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 there was one thing you said, which is that you should want to converge uh, on the functional stuff. And I guess I was saying, I think there might be some stuff that I just care about that is not functional, like the Cathars who thought we shouldn't have kids, right? Like there's no way that they are going to like dominate the future, but that's just what they cared about. And if you tell them that's not really your value, uh, I think they would just disagree, you know? So I've, I've come across this a lot before. So I'm, you know, many people think many of the things that humans have that they value aren't competitive, aren't functional. So laughter, love, play, you know, um, art, music, uh, you know, parties. Many people think that much of the thing they most value, those aren't functional and competition would take them away. And we social scientists and evolutionary biologists, et cetera, they have, we have a lot of ways we understand these, these things are functional. The reason they exist because they are functional. They weren't just random accidents of evolution. Yeah. They are here for a reason. No, I totally agree with you that, you know, competition did give us all the things that we value and, and all the arts and life and stuff. I guess I, let's, I would, I'm, I would concede that like, let's say like 95% of the stuff that we might consider like artsy or superfluous is actually valuable and useful. And I guess I'm saying, well, whatever the size of the difference is, whatever we, I'm, I'm willing to say that I think there are things that I value that are just bad for my own competitiveness. Um, and you might say, well, like that's just something you have to give up or you're going to be left to the stuff. But, but what fraction of the stuff you value is of that sort? That's the key question. Okay. That's if great. it's 95, then yeah, we got to focus on it. If it's five, maybe you should just accept it's going to go away. Okay. If I so, have a farewell party yeah, no, I funeral, think that, and be done with it. Yeah. So I think that question and the possibility for cheap legacy building, I think are the two, I agree with you. Like, or, well, I, I want to, I think what I'm introducing here that I haven't seen you talk much about before is like. What are our scope for cheap legacy building or like legacy increasing? Because uh, that's the thing that I want to explore. Okay, so let's talk about some legacies. Sure, so sure. One kind of thing. So on Earth, for example, cities are in particular locations. And once upon a time, that made functional sense. And later on, they're just stuck there. They don't move very easy, right? And so city locations are a legacy. Similarly, with say programming languages or human languages, languages are a legacy, right? There's these coordination on languages, as you know, and as a computer scientist, there are many technical standards that we coordinate on and that they end up being legacies just because once enough people are using them, then they kind of get stuck. <laughs> Do those sound like legacies that you? Okay, so that's proud to. I, I totally agree that there's a lot of uh, worthless legacy. Uh, and, and most of the legacies we have are kind of like worthless or accidental in that sense. Um, but again, I'm, I think that the- But can the children giggling be that sort of a legacy? That is, could it just be that as, uh, when enough children giggle, enough poems are written about it, they're included in enough heartwarming stories, they're told in enough you know, biographies that we, the society collects the idea that they're valuable and then at, that gets entrenched and then in because of the same sort of network effects as programming languages, the world continues to have children who giggle because at one point they were seen as valuable and then they just keep going. Well, exactly. So I think that's the question is, does, do we, how do we maintain those things? Like whatever the, uh, like valuable, but uh, like, oh, sorry, valuable to me, but not growth promoting 
uh, parts of this like payload that I want to preserve. How do I actually make sure that the future cares about it? Because there's a ton of, you know, like old traditions and stuff that we just let die um, because they're not functional and we don't value them anymore. So like when people choose their family religion or holidays or other sorts of things, people are often making choice. What about the past do I want to preserve and pass on? Yep. And we're all constantly making those choices. Is it okay if we keep making those or do you want to make sure we make those choices in the future the way you want us to do now? The, the second one, yes. And I know that that sounds like a recipe for disaster and it sounds horrible and totalitarian, but I guess I'm saying I do think that there is some stuff that I, if I could without destroying the world, uh, do that. Like for example, go ahead, please. Um, um, let's take holidays, right? Um, so there's, the, you know, your kids will grow up having celebrated some holidays and with certain family traditions and with their own kids, they will do some of those things, but not others, right? Just like you and your parents. And so do you wish that you lived in a world where you got to select which ones they did and yes. which ones? Yes. And I mean, I, I, I might disagree with like what holidays were chosen before because my values have drifted. Um, but that doesn't mean that my ancestors were wrong to like try to get me to do some hol uh, holidays from their point of view that I think are stupid. Well, let's but, go down the list. What about favorite dishes that your family made? Uh, do you want to make sure your children, grandchildren cook those same favorite dishes? Favorite movies? Yeah, great example, yes. Do you want would, them to watch the same movies? Sure. Yes. Great. Good examples. Yeah. Those are things that I would, all else being equal, I would like it if some tiny fraction of their lives, they revisited these, uh, these things that I haven't valued today arbitrarily. But it's, my, but my question was like, they're going to revisit some, but not others of the things that you like, say the favorite dishes, they're not going to, uh, eat every single one of those dishes every day or whatever they're gonna they're gonna you know some of them are not gonna stick with them and then others of them are and you wish you could pick that it's the fried chicken rather than lasagna that will oh. stick with them or something yeah well i'm just saying there's gonna be some that they'll do because they're functional no matter what and then there's gonna be the rest there's the other pile that are not functional and will just hurt them hurt their growth to do so right void and i'm saying i want to be able to put some things on that list yes but, and you, you want to choose which things go on that list is my yep. point. Exactly. Yes. Compared to what they would choose for themselves. So as she says, they're going exactly. to choose some things, Well, but you want to make sure they do more uh, than they would choose for themselves. Well, what I, well, what I want is for them to want the same things that I do. So again, I do think that there's a, I perceive an, again, maybe arbitrary difference between they loathe the holiday and they think it's bullshit and they are like miserable the whole time versus they just are born wanting to do the holiday and appreciating it in the similar ways that I did. The second thing is what I want. But they are born partially because the way we raise them, you want them to be born even more strongly to want to preserve things than they otherwise would be in our world so far. Exactly. And that's true for dishes and for clothing styles and for music and for couches and for driving habits or like how many things are we talking here? It so seems I think like that would verge into selecting their romantic partners too, because like, you know, you know? <laughs> romantic partners, that's going to strongly determine whether they go with, like, if you have religious traditions like I do, then if I were you, I would want to make sure that my child, like, had a romantic partner of, you know, either at least open to my religion or of the same religion so that the set of holidays, the religious holidays will get preserved. Yeah. So I, it, I think it does sound ridiculous to talk about caring about the minutiae of their experience. Um I don't want to give up. I, I want to try to thread the needle and find some way that's meaningful to me in which they have like preserved my non-functional values 
Um, and it might end up looking a little bit ridiculous, just like a lot of, you know, ancient religious traditions today look pretty ridiculous. Um, and I still right, am not willing to say that like zero is optimal. But you're still sure that what would happen without adding more control isn't enough. That's the key thing you're sure of. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I think it's likely that it's not optimal. Let's see. And that you're willing to pay pretty high costs and take some pretty substantial chances to try to make it more. So I um, that's why I kept talking about cheap interventions, because I am not willing to take huge risks. And I do think that like these like singletons are like a horrible risk and one of the like worst worst outcomes of humanity. So basically I'm saying I'm not committed to doing it. At, th at this stage, I'm trying to weigh the relative costs and benefits. But so many people talk today as if, if we allow AIs to get much better than they are now, then the game is over and they're just going to go change the universe and we will hate that. And it's as if we were exterminated. So how close are you to that? I'd say I'm pretty close. I, I'm not a big believer in... Well, so, so this is big, right? So you're a minute ago, you're talking about, oh, I just want to look, I want a few more holidays and a few more dishes. It's not a big deal. Only if it's cheap, you say, but with AI, you go, oh my God, this is, you know, this is Armageddon. We got to do everything possible in order to make sure uh, otherwise it's all over, right? So right. I, I think the confusion was because you were talking about my descendants and I was thinking about like something already pretty much like me, but I think you were, you had already established that you, you, we could consider the AGIs our descendants. So right, I, I was thinking from like a, an almost victory point of view and you were thinking from the like default point of view and I didn't clarify that. So yeah, so if, so I am I, not sure, but I do think that AIs could be pretty alien and I'm also not as uh, relaxed as you are about them respecting property rights, or, right, or rather, I think even if they do, we will be like swindled out of our resources. And uh, are you, are you, how are are you with your descendants respecting property rights? Because again, that was the whole point of the structure. First, let's talk about what we expect without AI, and then with AI. So it sounded like even without AI, you think your descendants are going to get really different. Are you worried about them not respecting property rights too? Uh, to some extent, I mean, like to. Like a good example would be like an old person on the internet who gets swindled out of all their uh, savings by like someone of the younger generation, something that right. already happens. And I, so I expect that to happen if we can't, you know, let people, uh, like if we can't solve aging, basically. Um, right. But for AI, you're willing to go with some pretty strong policy recommendations in order to prevent this Armageddon terrible scenario of the AI's dis displacing. Whereas with your human descendants, you agree that there's going to be some problems with that form, but you're not talking about the same level of policy response, right? Uh, okay. I guess I'll say I'm hoping that there could be cheap options. If there are none, I'm not yet willing to, uh, like say that I'm not going to hit the big button and have some more pervasive form of control. Like I, I'm not ruling out the singleton as like the best thing in expectation at this point. I think we should wrap up because we're over an hour so maybe each of you wants to have one last thing that you say oh, I, I don't know I, I really enjoy this and uh, I'm really glad that you guys are taking the time to think about these issues because I think that the, we do have a, a chance to either go down like a horrible route or a great route and it's not clear to me which one is which you have I really appreciate that you've been trying to um, clarify these issues I guess I, I would actually love to see from you and maybe a future essay a more direct rebuttal to what you think would go wrong with this plan for building like aligned AGI, which is what like a lot of the smart people that I know are, are trying to do. They're saying we're going to make the AI actually care about the same things that we do. I know that you've talked, touched on these before. It, it just sounds a lot like 
all the other mind control people have ever tried. I, I haven't seen the reason why this is a different sort. You say, yes, everybody really hates the previous examples of mind control for good reason. Oh, but I don't think it looks a lot like it. I don't think they hate this. They're really successful ones like breeding dogs to. Uh, I think you know, dogs bred us more the other way around, right? Okay, but again, that's a successful <laughs> like mind control that both parties are sort of happy with, at, at least today. So. Uh, thank you for discussing this with us, David. And I guess my conclusion is there's still more to talk about here. Me too. <laughs> All right. Bye. I guess. Bye, Robin.